Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans, excuse me, not to Romans. It's just a habit. To Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, beginning verse 1. Last Sunday as we introduced this series that we are calling Christ Examines His Church, and we introduced the theme for this year, as last year was Coram Deo, living in the presence of God under the authority of His Word and for His glory alone. Coram Deo last year, this year we're talking about upward and, and outward. Upward continues the idea of Coram Deo. Upward continues the idea of keeping our focus on Him and our concentration on growing in Christ and, and becoming by His grace more Christ-like. So, so upward carries that theme on, just not in Latin. And outward is our, once we see that upward commitment to Him alone, then we see that outward reach into our community and, and indeed to the world around us. And, and so that's going to be our focus for the whole year. The, the evening services that we're going to have instead of our regular grace equipping classes this coming uh, few months. We're going to have services of worship, get, uh, upward gatherings, and then we're going to have times of home prayer, and we're going to have times of outward outreach into the community on Sunday nights as we've done in the past. And so there's going to be that focus for these months to hopefully get us directed in that way. We kind of kicked that off last week by looking at chapter 1 of the book of Revelation and seeing who this Christ is that we're called to serve. And we saw very clearly that Christ is the one with the authority to tell us what to do. When John saw that vision of him, he saw a vision of one who was in absolute power and in absolute authority at every respect, in every respect. We saw one in that vision that John had of, of Christ, one who said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning, the end. I'm the one who was and who is and who is to come. There is no beginning. There is no ending in him. He is eternal God. And he calls us to worship him. He calls us to serve him in that way and as that person. Yes, he came to serve us by going to the cross and taking our sins with him. He, he came to serve us by giving us new life in him. But then he calls us to be obedient in serving him as his body, as his church on this earth. And so as we're thinking about revival, renewal, reformation, if you will, uh, in these next months and especially in this series of messages, as we're thinking about that, we want to focus on what has Christ called the church to be and what does Christ think about the church today. Someone once said, one of my professors in seminary, as we're looking at these seven letters to these seven churches, he said, you know, the, the church at Ephesus, this one we're going to look at this morning, is without a doubt the first Southern Baptist church ever. Just the description of it shows a church that resembles many of our churches today. Just the description that Jesus gives in talking to them, it sounds just like what you would see on so many corners, in so many cities, in so many county places across our land. It's just sad and scary how accurate Jesus is. But not just with Ephesus, with all seven of them to some degree. But when you think about Ephesus, I just think it kind of hits home a lot with what we have been as, as churches in our specific sphere of fellowship. I think it relates to others too. 
but I know us. And so it seems to be so clear. Listen to the words of the Lord in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, Ephesus, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's again, just an expression of Christ's authority and Christ's power among the churches. Okay. I know your works. You toil. And your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you, and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of our Lord. It's amazing how Jesus in this passage begins with a commendation. He begins by commending them. He says, you know, you are a very active group of people. You toil. You work hard. You, you don't give in. You don't give up. He says, I, I know your toil. I know your diligent labor. It's not just work. It's just not just deeds. It's hard work. It's doing the hard things. It's, it's reaching out. It's, it's having every possible organization and every possible activity that you can have. Jesus, I know that you are immensely busy and toiling every single day. The Ephesian church was, was an active church. It was busy, evidently, in the service to God and in the service to others. But there was, a, there was something about that service that was lacking. There was something about that service that was, was missing. They served out of their own strength. They, they perhaps served out of the idea that they would be commended for it. That someone would say to them, you know, boy, that church really is a hard-working church. Or that Christian really is about doing what they ought to be about doing. They're, they're, they're out serving in soup kitchens. They're out, they're out clothing the, the, the poor. They're, they're doing things that ought to be done. Aren't they really in, in a good position themselves? And recognizing that it's very easy for us to do things to gain the recognition of men. I'll never forget growing up in East Toboga Baptist Church. I'll never forget this first Sunday I was sick and, and couldn't go to Sunday school as a probably a six or a seven-year-old boy. I was devastated. I, I just couldn't believe that I wasn't going to be at Sunday school. I was running a fever, and mother said, you cannot go with a fever. I thought that was terribly unfair. Now, it wasn't because I wanted to hear the lesson. It wasn't because I couldn't, couldn't be in worship. It wasn't because it was just driving to be there to learn more about Jesus. It was because I knew that by missing that Sunday, what was going to happen? I wasn't going to get my star at the end of the year. You know, 
the, the pastor wasn't going to stand before the church and say, and little Billy Haynes had perfect attendance in 1957 or 58 or whenever it was. I mean, I mean, I was doing the right thing. I really wanted to be there. I really did. But I was doing it for all the wrong reasons. I was doing it because I wanted to be recognized. I was doing it because I wanted somebody to say, see old Billy Haynes? I'm not Billy anymore. You can only call me that if you live in East Tobago, okay? Sorry about that. But I wanted it because I wanted to be recognized. I wanted the people to say, isn't he a good boy? I was all about moralism. I was all about right appearance. I was all about getting the credit that I felt like I was due, and it had nothing to do with the gospel or nothing to do with a deep-seated love for Jesus. This was before I ever knew Jesus. But it was about doing things for all the wrong reasons to maybe get some of the benefits of doing that. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus through the Apostle Paul, he says, listen, I, I know that you are busy and toiling. But I think the implied question there is, but why are you busy and why are you toiling? He also talks about their endurance. Uh, they were evidently confronted with many false teachers and, and false teaching and and they stood against it. He said, I, I know your patient endurance, how you, you cannot even bear with those who are evil. Uh, you know, you, they, were, they were snubbed in public. They were looked down upon because of their faith in Christ. They were maligned in private. They were, they were talked about when, when people would meet and they'd say, oh, you know those Christians down at the church down there in Ephesus, you know, they're, they're just a bunch of Jesus followers. They don't they don't understand what real life is all about. I mean, they, these people were maligned and snubbed and persecuted, and yet they endured. They continued to press on. And when false teachers would come along, people who, were, who, who claimed to be apostles, called themselves apostles, but they were not apostles, said, you found them to be false. Now, now i got to say, I worry about the 21st century Baptist church a little bit that we're not quite as diligent as Ephesus was in that area. That we're not quite as diligent about looking at what true teaching is and what false teaching is and, and looking at people on TV maybe that call themselves apostles. And we say, oh, they're so in, encouraging, they're so uplifting, but recognizing they are false teachers because they don't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Ephesus wouldn't do that. They, they would not endure false teaching. They would not endure evil. You cannot bear with those who are evil. In, in other words, they were probably carrying out church discipline in a proper manner. They were seeing sin rise up and, and sin become a problem, and they're saying that can't be a part of the body. You can't act like that. You can't live like that and claim to be a believer in Jesus Christ because when Jesus Christ saves you, just like the passage that that uh, Pastor Scott read this morning. When Jesus Christ saves you, he changes you. And, and when Jesus Christ saves you, you put off the old man and you put on the new man and, and you seek to be obedient to what he's called you to be. And so the church at Ephesus said, we cannot put up with false believers who claim to be one thing and live another way. And they endured it. They were criticized because they were probably called judgmental. They were criticized because they, were, they, they just weren't loving enough, perhaps, because they, they, they stood against evil. 
Jesus said, I want you to know, I commend your endurance. I commend your standing against evil and not putting up with it. I commend you not putting up with the false teachers. And that led to a, really kind of a third commendation, not only their, their toil and their endurance, but also their orthodoxy. They, that was kind of the third virtue that Jesus gave them. They stood firm on the truth. That they would not look at false teaching and allow it, much less follow it and accept it. And endure it in their presence. They were orthodox with a word. Orthodox with sound doctrine. And so Jesus says to them, I commend you for all of this. I think it's great that you're doing ministry. I think it's great. Maybe he was talking to Grace Baptist this morning. He said, I think it's great you're going to Canada. I think it's great you're going to Columbus, Ohio. I think it's great you're going to Colonial Village. I think it's great you're doing all these things. But he would probably ask us very point blank toward our face, why are you doing them? What is the reason that you're doing those? Is it so that somebody will say, well, they've got a real good missions program or they've got a real heart for going out and caring for people who need to be cared for and we do have that? But is it for recognition or is it for the right reason? Jesus goes on from the commendation to a complaint in verse 4 against the church at Ephesus. Look what he says. But I have this against you. I have this one thing against you. Can't you imagine as the church was first hearing this letter read to them that they were kind of getting just a little proud? That they were just thinking, you know, hey, there's Jesus. He said, our toil is good, our endurance is good, our, our orthodoxy is good. Jesus is saying, man, you guys have got it together. And then he says, but I've got this one thing against you. I imagine their chest fell just a little bit. Their heads maybe drooped just a little bit at that point. But I also imagine they probably said, well, <laughs> one thing? No big deal. I mean, we know we're not perfect. We, we know we don't do everything right all the time. We're, we're not a perfect people. We, we still struggle with sin ourselves, and we, we struggle with being what God has called us to be. So, so he told us how good we are in these all areas. He commended us in all these areas, and he says he's just got one thing against us. We're doing pretty good. Until he says what that one thing is. And he says, this is what I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Other translations say you've left your first love. You've abandoned your first love. I asked the question in the sermon title, what do you love and the most? What do you love, question mark, the most, question mark? I mean, what is preeminent? What is the most important thing in your life? Who is the most important person in your life? Who do you love the most? A couple of weeks ago, I stood in a very cold barn in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and I pronounced the wedding vows for, or with, and led them in the wedding vows for Madison Hutchinson and Justin Posey. And, and as we were doing that ceremony, I, I made the statement, I said, you know, you're not here today to declare your present love for one another. That's obvious. That's understood. 
No one in this group that's observing this as witnesses would question whether you love each other right now or not. You're not here to pledge current love for one another. What you're doing here in taking these vows is you're making pledges of future love for one another. Not today, but in the future. You're saying for better and worse and richer and poorer and in sickness and in health, forsaking all others till death do us part. The wedding vow has nothing to do with current, present love. It has everything to do with future love. Jesus is saying here, Ephesus, when you started, you had the right first love. Your heart was on fire for me. You, you, had, a, you had a passionate desire to know me and know me better. You, you weren't worried about the world around you. You weren't worried about what other people thought. You just wanted to know me and love me and show me that love. I, I, want, you to, I, I want you to know I have this against you. You have abandoned what you loved, the person you loved, and the passionate love you had for me from the very beginning. And that's problematic. When you abandon your first love, when you leave your first love, when you fall from the, the early heights of devotion to Christ that they'd previously attained and then fall into this, into this lukewarm love, this secondary love, this, this thinking, well, I, I love Jesus, but you know, I love this person or this thing or something else more than I love him. Jesus says, therein lies the problem. Therein lies the problem. Because you see, it's not just about starting the race. It's not just about starting the Christian life. It's not just about starting being a church as we did 11 years ago, a little over 11 years ago. On November the 19th, 2006, it's, it's not just about starting as a church and, and being together in prayer and being together just pursuing Christ and pursuing His will and asking His Spirit to mold a body of believers that was pretty unmolded at that point. It's not just about starting good, but it's about finishing in love with your first love. I have this against you, that you have abandoned that. You see, love is the first mark of a living church. Indeed, it's not a living church at all unless it's a loving church, and it's not a loving church if love for Christ is not the priority love. When, when the lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? We talked about it last week. It's right there on the board. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it seems like maybe in the church at Ephesus, that as Jesus writes it through the Apostle John in this, this final book of the Bible, it appears that maybe Ephesus had switched that just a little bit. They still loved their neighbor. They still wouldn't accept falsehood. They still endured. They still took persecution. They did all those things together as, as a body, and they seemed to kind of love one another. But their love for Christ had waned. And when the love for Christ wanes, eventually the love for one another will wane. When, when our love for Christ wanes, we will see very quickly a love and a compassion for those within the body 
and those outside of the body who need the gospel, whether they're here in Somerset or Columbus or Canada or wherever they may be, if our love for Christ wanes, sooner or later our love for one another, the second commandment, will begin to wane and begin to drop. Love for Christ adds a new dimension to everything it touches. Love for Christ adds a new zest and inspires us to be what God has called us to be. And there are several byproducts, if you will, of, of genuine love for Christ and what it produces. First of all, it produces a deeper worship. We talk about worship a lot here. We talk about how worship is that which fuels our ministry. Worship is what fuels our missions. Worship is what fuels our evangelism. It, it, it's primary that if we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind, or at least desire to do so, we won't do it perfectly, but we will desire to do so. And if that's our desire, worship will become deeper and worship will become richer. And, and you, don't, you, you won't come to church like I did as a, a little primary kid back in the East Tobago Baptist Church in order to get recognition from other people. You come to church because you have to be there just to worship Him together with the body, with your family. Just to be there to lift up your voice and lift up your heart. To sing even if off-key. To sing even if flat. I know flat well. When people ask me what part I sing, I tell them I sing flat. That's my part. I know that's not really a part, but it's about as close as I can get. But singing to the glory of God, singing to the exaltation of Christ, when you love Him, you cannot avoid worship. Listen, it's going, to be a, it's going to kill me for the next few weeks, next couple of weeks anyway, that I can't be here in worship with you. Yeah, I can turn on the TV maybe and hear a sermon, or I can listen to a podcast, or I can do any number of things, but it's not the same. It's not the same as gathering with a body of believers that I love dearly, and I know love me, and, and, and together focusing our love on Christ and worshiping him loving christ first will lead to a deeper worship second thing it'll do it'll lead to a, a more prompt obedience you see we have to remember that what the bible means by love is not primarily an emotion and we need to understand love whether it's in church or in marriage or in family or whatever we need to realize love is not primarily an emotion love is primarily doing what we have covenanted to do uh, in the church and being obedient to Christ in all that he calls us to do. And when God's word says we ought to do it, we obey. We, we just obey because we love him more than we love anybody else or anything else. To not love him leads to disobedience. To not love him leads to saying, well, his word may say this, but that's not what I want. I want this, and so I want this more than I want that, which means I love this more than I love Christ. It's important to recognize that. Loving Christ with all our heart, soul, and mind, or at least seeking to do that, will lead to a prompt obedience that is, is not primarily an emotion. It's more of a loyalty than it is an affection. It, it comes under the control of the will rather than the control of the emotion. 
probably when you first came to Christ, for most of us, it was a fairly emotional thing. I told you my story. I was sitting in the rain in January. Wasn't this cold, thank goodness. But I was sitting in the rain in January under Denny Chimes on the quad at the University of Alabama. And Christ saved me. And, and there was rain coming down, but the rain was nothing compared to the tears and the emotion that I felt toward Christ, the, the absolute love that I, I, I sensed toward Christ. And I, so much so that I, couldn't, I, I could not tell anybody. Went back to my dorm room, told my roommate, went next door, woke some people up, told them about it. You know, I've, I've come to Christ tonight. Now, I'd gone to church all my life. I was that little primary boy back in East Toboga, if you recall. But at this particular time, God did a, Christ did a work in my life. It was so life-changing that all I wanted to do was tell people how much I love Jesus. That's all I wanted to do. And I did it to youth groups, and I did it to camps, and I did it to children's homes, and wherever they'd let me go and tell it, I went and told it. And my... My love for Christ burned hot. And I got a feeling yours did too. And it was, it was not just an emotional thing, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a thing that involved the will as well as the emotions. It, it, it involved wanting to be obedient to Christ. So here you got a church doing a lot of right things and probably somewhat proud that they're doing them right and proud that Jesus says, good job, I commend you for that. And then they got a church that hears Jesus say, but I got this one thing against you. And that one thing is so huge, so big, that it kind of makes all those other activities shrink in comparison. I got a feeling before they read the rest of this letter, some of those there at Ephesus were saying, well, what does that mean? What do we need to do? I mean, do we need to start a new program? You know, a new program, we'll start, we'll have a class, and we'll start, call it the, the Love Jesus First class, you know? It doesn't work like that. Jesus told them what to do. He, he says there, in verse number 5, remember. Remember. Remember the things that you fall, where, from where you fall. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And when you remember where you were, repent. And do the works that you did at first. And again, this work here is not the, the activity work. It's the work of pursuing Christ, loving Christ, wanting Christ more than anything else. He said, remember. It sounds almost like he's contradicting the Apostle Paul when Paul said to the Philippian Christians, you know, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. But he's really saying the same thing. Paul has been dealing with the Philippian Christians about their failures. And, and he's saying to them, forget those failures, forget how you let Christ down, and now look forward and pursue him once again. That's what Jesus is saying here. Remember how it was at the beginning. 
Don't worry about all in between there. Remember how it was when it began and press on to that again. Remember it and repent of where you are right now. Remember where you've fallen from. Memory can be such a precious, precious gift. And then repent. I love it that Jesus doesn't say, remember where you were and try to conjure up some new feelings for me, some, some kind of emotional experience. Sometimes we see that happen in our churches. You know, we just kind of get the music going just right and get the beat going just right and conjure up a lot of emotion and everybody gets all giddy and all excited and, and we say, whoo, I feel good about Jesus today. And it lasts about a week or less. It's not about emotion. Jesus doesn't say, I want you to conjure up some kind of, some kind of a emotional experience. He, he doesn't urge the, the, the Ephesian Christians to even feel bad about their sins. There's Paul's forgetting what lies behind. He doesn't say, listen, shame on you. You ought to, be, you ought, you ought to feel like, uh, you just ought to feel really bad about this. What old country preacher in Alabama used to say, you ought to feel like a suck egg dog sinner. There's your Alabama lesson for the day. Thanks to Jimmy Coleman. It's his favorite phrase. And he would be in the church and would point at people and say, you're nothing but a, a suck egg dog sinner. I don't know what he meant, but I knew it sounded bad. He doesn't encourage them. He doesn't tell them to feel bad about their sin. He doesn't tell them to conjure up some kind of emotional experience. He just says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see your sin, recognize your sin, and in repentance, by God's grace and by Christ's grace, by God's power and by God's glory, for God's glory, turn away from it. Turn away from it. Now, maybe to the church at Ephesus, there may have been some huge sin there, but, but basically what he's saying is anything that has replaced Christ as first place in your life, I don't care if it's a good thing. These deeds are all good deeds. But, but they'd forgotten who they really loved. And they did ministry for ministry's sake, not ministry for Christ's sake. He said to them, remember and repent. Remember and turn away from it. And, and, and then he says, he commanded them to resume their former state. Tells them, do the works they did at first. Do what they did at first. Don't quit ministry. But remember who they're to love. It's amazing. Jesus kind of prophesied that. Back in the Olivet Discourse, back in, in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, when he was talking about signs of the end of the age as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us what things are going to be. And, what will be the sign of your coming and, and of the end of the age? And he started telling them these things. And a lot of them we talk about, you know, wars and rumors of wars. And don't be alarmed at that. I guess don't be alarmed if you get a text message on your phone saying there's an incoming missile and you're sitting on Hawaii. Still can't figure that one out. He said the end is not yet. He goes on, he says, here's what's going to happen to you. Talking to the apostles. 
It's talking to the church. It's talking to you and me. He said, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and even put you to death. And, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I always find it amazing. I find it amazing in my own life sometimes, so it's not just you and me too. When we are shocked that there's any kind of anti-Christian bias in the world. You know that, well, they don't like us because we're Christians. They don't like the Christ. They don't like the gospel. They don't like the cross. They don't like the Ten Commandments. Well, no, they don't. And Jesus said they wouldn't. They'll deliver you to tribulation. They'll put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Because of that, many are going to fall away, Jesus says. Many are going to fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and they'll lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, let's put sin there, lawlessness. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Is that what was happening in Ephesus? I don't know. But it sure sounds like it was. They weren't loving Christ with all their heart, soul, and mind. They weren't pursuing knowing Him. They weren't pursuing His name's sake. They were, they were being persecuted, but, but were they shying away from then saying the gospel truth? What happens to you tomorrow morning or, or Tuesday morning if you're off tomorrow and you go into work and, and, and somebody says something to you about being a Christian, starts to mock you and make fun of you? What are you going to say? Are you going to say, well, I'm just going to go back to my room, wherever I go. Or you're going to say, yeah, I love Christ. Matter of fact, I love Christ more than I love anything. I love Christ more than I love this job. Well, you know, if you talk about that, you can get fired from this job. That's fine. I love Christ more than I love this job. Or you say, hmm, it's too high a price to pay. Just too high a price to pay. I mean, the apostles, we'll look at it tonight when we talk about prayer for just a few minutes. You know, the apostles were drug in before the Sanhedrin, the council, and they said, Listen, you don't say that name, Jesus. You don't speak that name, Jesus. You don't preach that name, Jesus. You don't have anything publicly to say about Jesus at all. Peter and John said, well, you know, as for you, you got to do what you got to do, but we got to do what we got to do. That's Haynes' paraphrase. We, we got to do what we're called to do. We got to do what we're commanded to do. And they said, if you do it, you're going to pay. Then we'll pay because we can't not do it. Went back to the church and when they were released. And I won't get into that until tonight. So I'll be back tonight and see what happened. But a revival broke out. Revi revival broke out in that early church in Acts chapter 4 because of the persecution of real disciples. They didn't fall away. Their love didn't grow cold. Jesus went on to say in Matthew 24, he said, but, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's proof of salvation, endurance. They were enduring at Ephesus. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world 
as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Got to be a lot of persecution, got to be a lot of pain, got to be a lot of suffering, got to be a lot of endurance by believers before the end comes. You know, the truth is, the sad truth is, there are many churches all over the world today that have really ceased to truly exist. Their buildings are standing. Their preachers preach. They continue to gather. But Jesus has removed their lampstand because they've endured false doctrine, because they've endured evil and sin, because they've really left their first love and they love the world more than they love Christ. And they call themselves a church, but they're really not. Many churches today in many ways are plunged into darkness because there's no lampstand. There's no light of Christ coming forth from it. They're doing a lot of good things, doing a lot of deeds, doing a lot of activity. God help us from being a hyperactive church that fails to love Christ the most. Let's pray.